Revelation 15. If you didn't get a study sheet when you came in, we'll take just a second to get one of those into your hands. Why don't you lift your hand right now if you don't have one. Are we sure we didn't go a breaker up there? But why don't we send somebody to check on that if we could. All right, Revelation chapter 15. Let me, uh, let me try to help remind you of some of the things that we have seen thus far in our study. We've been a long time, of course, into this, this study. Uh, some of this most of you could, could do. Others of you are coming for the very first time. And again, we want to say welcome to you folks. And we want to make sure you can get everything that everybody else is going to get this morning, even though we've been in this study for, for quite some time. But of course, the book of Revelation is, is one of the most intriguing books, if nothing else, in the entire Word of God. And what we find in the book of Revelation, as God has clearly taught us that he would do, in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, what he does is he tells us that the way that we approach his word is this. We are to study that book. Because God has revealed himself in that book, but what it says is that we've got to make sure as we study that we come in the right way. Because what he says is that he has put divisions in his book. In other words, he's, he's spliced that same thing so that we can begin to see it very systematically and very organized in the way that God has laid that thing out. Now, when we go to a book of the Bible, like the book of Revelation, what we do is we go and we begin to look as we study this book to see how God has actually divided it for us. And we saw and have seen in the book of Revelation that the way that God does this in this incredible book is there's an event that takes place two times in this book that very neatly divide this book into three sections. That event is that something happens, and let's see if we can't say it together. What is it that happens two times, two times only in this book, y'all? You see? Y'all are good, man. Heaven opens two times in the book, and what that does is it divides the book into three sections. The first three chapters are the church age, and then in Revelation chapter 4, heaven opens, and it's the rapture of the church, and the church, which is mentioned 22 times to that point in the book of Revelation, is no longer found. So we know that the next event that's going to be taking place on, on this earth, as far as the Word of God is concerned, is going to be the rapture of the church. We see that very dogmatically, very clearly in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. Okay, then from chapter 4 to chapter 19, what God does is he begins to show what's going to take place after the rapture. And that is the tribulation, which culminates with the second coming of Christ. And then heaven opens again in Revelation 19 and, and, and verse 11. And that is when Christ actually comes back. And then in chapter 20, it shows the things that will take place after that. Namely... The millennium in chapter 20, the new heaven and new earth in chapter 21, and then eternity in chapter 22. So there's three sections. The church age, the tribulation which culminates with the second coming, and then the events that will take place after the second coming of Christ. Now, where we find ourselves right now is in that big section in the middle. In that section where he covers the tribulation period and the second coming, what he does is he brings us through that four different times he allows us to see this tribulation period which is a time of tribulation on this planet there that's a, a great way to describe it jesus said there's never been a time like it before it he said there'll be, never be a time like it after it but four times he brings you through 
the tribulation period. We saw the first time that he brings us through. It's through the opening of seven seals. Then it's through the sounding of seven trumpets. And then it's the revealing of seven personalities. And where we find ourselves now in chapter 16 is uh, in this final time that he's going to bring us through the tribulation and the second coming of Christ. And this time it's through the pouring of seven vials. Okay, now, now listen to this very carefully. This is important. The actual pouring of these vials doesn't take place until chapter 16. What chapter 15 is, is just a preface to get John ready for what he is about to see as God pours out these vials. Now the reason that that's so important is as God pours out these vials and he shows this tribulation period for the fourth and final time, it is in this fourth and final time when God, like in no other place in the Bible, begins to reveal to us his incredible, or as verse 1 of chapter 15 says, his great and marvelous, what? Wrath. And it's getting ready to happen in chapter 16. I mean, it's just absolutely incredible. And so what God does in chapter 15 is he gets John ready to be able to see it. And the reason now that we have taken so long in preparing to get to chapter 16 is I think in God's mind there's some reason that he knew he needed to preface this with an entire chapter in the book of Revelation for John to be ready to see it. What I'm trying to do as the pastor of this church is trying to get us ready to see what we're going to see in chapter 16 because I'm telling you, it is, it is heavy. It is real heavy. For the last 19 centuries since John received this revelation, what God has done is he has been very, very gracious. He, he's been very loving. He's been very compassionate. But in chapter 15, in actually chapter 16, all that, all that's going to change. And you know what? We don't tend to look at the wrath of God or what we're going to see here in the, the next several weeks. We don't tend to see it as verse 1 of chapter 15 describes it. Why don't you look at it? We don't see it as great and marvelous. Like we talked about last week, we almost view this, this wrath thing as if this is a remember how we, we quoted from U.S. News and World Report that most Christians, even Bible-believing Christians, believe that the wrath of God is really like a blemish on his character that we need to try to cover with the cosmetic of, of his, his love. And so we've we got to just almost not let people know that this is a part of the character of God. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here. What, what if I were to come to you this morning and, and I were to say to you folks, listen, folks, I got great news for you. Okay, here's the message. Okay, folks, I got great news for you. God's been doing some rethinking about this, this whole thing. And, you know, as he's been rethinking it, he's just kind of stepped back from it all and said, you know what, this is kind of crazy. You know, this whole sin thing really began with one guy in a stupid little garden that ate the wrong piece of fruit. 
You know, so really, you know, this sin thing isn't really all that big anyway. And the very thought, I mean, I don't know what I was thinking. I mean, you know, the very thought that somebody might spend an eternity in hell because they ate the wrong piece of fruit. And you know what? I mean, even if somebody went 70 years of their life and just did nothing but continual sinning, you know, I mean, it really does seem a little bit harsh, even to myself, that somebody would spend an eternity in hell paying for those sins. And so, so listen, guys, I've decided that it's not really that big of a deal anymore. The sin thing, I, hey, listen, I just, I just forgive you. So from now on, do the best you can, and I'll see you when you croak. You know, if, if God were to do something like that, and some prophet of God could come on the planet and say, yeah, God's been rethinking and this is what he's going to do. You know what? Most Christians, if it was brought to a vote, would say, Phew. you know, that's the way I thought it should have been all along anyway. Isn't that right? Because even those of us that claim to believe this book... I mean, the U.S. News and World Report was hitting it pretty much nail on the head. We do tend to kind of think that that's the way this thing should have come down. And, of course, the standard line, the way that it comes to us, is if God is a loving God, he would never, can you fill in the blank? He would never what? He'd never send anybody to hell. I mean, if he's loving, and, and so what, what happens to us? If somebody says that to us, I think we all come into this thing the same way. Somebody comes to us when we first get saved, and they throw that thing out to us. A loving God never sent anybody to hell. And so we say to them, um, well, uh, and so, hey, hold the thought. So we run to our discipler, and we say, Hey, you know, I was talking to so-and-so, and, and they said, a loving God would never send anybody to hell. How, how do we answer that one? And, well, here's the way that you do it. Your di disciple tells you, well, you tell them that a loving God doesn't send anybody to hell. The loving God offers his love through his death on the cross, and if somebody goes to hell, they don't go there because God sent them. They go there because they chose to go there. So we say... I like it. Yeah. So we, we run back to this guy, and we're all excited about being able to say, hey, a loving God doesn't send anybody to hell. He offered his love through us on, to us on the cross, and he paid the penalty for our sin, and if he doesn't send people there, they choose to go there. Whoa. You know? <laughs> we're all proud of ourselves, and, and, and they look at you, and they say, well, if he's, if he's so loving, then why did... Why did he even create such an awful place of torment anyway? And we say, well, uh, um, well, you, uh, hold up just a minute. So we run to our discipler and we say, okay, this is a hard one, man. I, I, I said what you said to say to him. And so now he says, if he's so loving, then why did he even create hell? Our discipler, being the wise one, they've been around for a little while. They say, well, you see, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41 that he didn't create hell for people. What it was, it was actually made for was for the devil 
and his angels. And we say, oh, I like it, man. And so we run back to him, and we say, oh, man, I got the answer. It wasn't created for people anyway. It was created for the devil and his angels. And they say, yeah, but, you know, if God knew that if Lu that Lucifer was going to do what he was going to do, and he knew that a third of the angels were going to go with him, and God knew that they'd become Satan and the demons, and why did he even do it in the first place? Why did he even create them? And if all that happened before man was created, then, and he knew that he was going to put him in that garden, and he was going to choose the way of evil and all that, why did he create man in the first place? And then they really drop it on you. Because they say, I mean, really? Isn't the bottom line on this thing that God and Satan have really entered into a board game on planet Earth and man has found himself stuck in the middle of that thing? And we say, um, yeah, well... You know, and so we run to our, our discipler and we say, oh my goodness, man, he's really asked me a tough one now. And so your discipler in all of their wisdom says, why don't you go back to him and, and say, now, if I could answer that question to your satisfaction, would you repent of your sin? And would you turn the control of your life over to the Lord Jesus Christ? Because, you know what, to be quite honest with you, I have never in all of my years, which have been few, <laughs> in all of my years, you know what, I've never... And how many of you have heard all, all of these arguments that we're talking about here? We all have. And everybody thinks they're the first one to come up with all this, you know. But you know what, I, I've never seen anybody that entered into that whole arena of these questions that we're talking about that even if they give them sufficient answers for it that's not the issue of what's going on what's going on is people are trying to rationalize sitting on the throne of their own life calling their own shots living in the temporal pleasures of their own sin and they need something to be able to rationalize that kinglyhood or queenlyhood, and, and so these questions just start flowing out because of a rationalization. However, it is a legitimate question, isn't it? I mean, if you really want to just sift it down and boil it down, isn't it? Isn't it a little like, I mean, you'd have to admit now, it's a little like this game that we found ourselves caught in between God and Satan. And you see, I don't know what works for you, but this works, it works for me. If it is true, and you know what, in the final analysis, I really don't believe that that is the way that it is. But if it is, God thought that this game was important enough that he came himself and got on that board in the person of Jesus Christ and he suffered and he died 
in order to win that thing. And he says to everybody else that ever enters the game, if you will, I'm going to win, and I want you to win too. You see, we all have the opportunity of winning and spending an eternity with the holy God of the universe. And for you folks that may be here today that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, as Frank said just a few minutes ago, you know what? The message that God is trying to get to you is that He is most definitely a God of love, and yet what makes Him a God of love is the fact that He hates sin so much. His love was manifested in the fact that He came to this planet and died because of His holiness. There is a penalty that is placed on sin. Somebody had to pay it, and it was supposed to be us. And God says, but I love you, and so I don't want you to have to pay that. I'll pay that penalty for you so that you don't have to. And the God of the universe, the holy creator God of the universe, wants to have and died to have a personal love relationship with you. However, there is most definitely going to come a time when God's wrath against as Romans 1.18 says, against all of the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men is going to be poured out on this planet. And that's where we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 15. And notice Roman numeral 1 on your outline, the unveiling of the great and marvelous sign. The unveiling of the great and marvelous sign. And what John begins to do for us is he begins to let us, letter A, he begins to let us look at the scene. Okay, God's getting ready to show him this, this great and marvelous sign. Now, in order to understand what that is, God just begins to paint a little scenario for him in heaven. And what God does, and John does for us here as we move into chapter 15, is he allows us to look at the scene. And the first thing that John sees, number one, is he sees seven angels. These seven angels, number two, are holding seven plagues. And what we began to see as we, we looked at what these seven plagues actually are, and it's defined for us right here in verse 1, is these plagues are the wrath of God that has been filling up for the last 6,000 years or so. Okay, now, now check this out. God has in His grace and love and mercy and compassion and forgiveness... Just been extending that and extending that and extending that to man time and time again, year after year, century after century, for thousands and thousands of years. This is what God has been giving to man, His grace and His mercy, while at the same time, what it says in verse 1 is His wrath has been filling up in heaven. And there's going to come a time, it hasn't come yet, but after the church has been raptured and we have moved for three and a half years through the tribulation period, God's wrath is going to come to the place to where after all of these years, it's finally going to be filled up. And what God's going to do with these seven angels, they will hold seven vials or seven cups, seven bowls, if you will. And God's going to take that wrath that's been filling up through all of these years, and he's going to begin to pour that out in equal doses into the seven vials that these seven angels are that have, hold in their hand. These are the seven last 
And final, plagues, God says. The plagues are the fullness of the wrath of God. So, as we begin to look at this scene that John sees, John says, I'm, or God says, I'm going to give you a great and marvelous sign, John. John begins to look around, and he sees these seven angels. He sees the seven vials. He begins to see God pour out his wrath into these vials. But that's not the only thing that he sees. He sees, letter C, he sees an incredible throng, and he begins to give a sevenfold description of the victors. These are not, this ain't us. This isn't church-age saints that he's describing here. These are tribulation saints. These are people who have come through the tribulation period. And after looking at the seven angels with the seven plagues, he begins to give us a sevenfold description of these victors. And he says, letter A, the first thing in this description is that they are standing on the sea of glass. They are standing on the sea of glass. And last week, as we began to compare Scripture with Scripture, we began to see that this, this sea that John sees here is the same sea that John saw back in, in chapter 4. It's the same sea that Moses saw in Exodus chapter 24. It's the same sea that Job saw in Job chapter 9 and chapter 26 of his book. It's the same sea that Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel chapter 1. And what we began to see, this is on your study sheet, is that sea is really nothing more than the platform from which God displays His glory. And again, we, we don't have the time, obviously, this morning to go back through all of it uh, if you're here for the first time, this will you know, just blow your mind as you begin to see this thing. But, oh my goodness, as you just begin to go through the Word of God and see how God describes this thing, it's, it's incredible. But what this sea of glass, which becomes the platform that God uses to display His glory, what it actually is, is an incredible mass of frozen water that's above all of the, the constellations and the galaxies and the star clusters. There is a, God describes a body of water above all of that that he uses, it says in the book of Job, to, to hide his throne. And as all of these men in the Word of God begin to look at that thing, they said, uh, using their own personality and their own way to describe it, some of them said that it was like being paved with solid sky, Exodus chapter 24. Others of them said it, it was like a... It was like a sapphire stone. It was this hard surface that it kind of had this, it was clear, you could see through it, and it kind of had this blue cast to it. We, we would say it was like a, a frozen ice cube. It's like this big old ice cube that's clear as crystal. It's, he says it's like glass, or it's, it's like a, a mirror. And check it out. That sea of glass is where his throne sits. And what the sea of glass does as the throne of God sits there is it reflects, the sea of glass reflects the brightness and the glory of the one that's seated on that throne. And again, every time that you begin to go through the Bible and you begin to look at that thing from Moses, Job, Ezekiel, and John, when he sees it in Revelation chapter 4, every one of them describe it always. It's as clear as crystal. And again, that's because... God in His glory has always been manifest in absolute, pure, you know, 
holiness. And you see that that C is reflecting the character and the nature of God. What it's doing is it's reflecting His holiness. But when John sees it in chapter 15 and verse 2, look at it, it's different than any of the other times when you're, when you're showing this throughout the entire Word of God. Something has changed. It, it's different because this time it's mingled with fire. And we saw this last week. The point is, for all these thousands and thousands of years, God and His holiness, just like we've been talking about, has revealed Himself as a God of, of love and mercy and grace and compassion, all the while warning that His wrath is filling up in heaven but you see it's not until the second half of the tribulation which is the context here in Revelation chapter 15 it's not until then that his wrath is actually filled up and until then God's wrath coming from that throne isn't actually revealed but once it is that sea upon which he sits enthroned in all of his glory John says it's still man it's still clear as crystal but it's it's mingled with fire because you see that fire is the reflection of his of his what of his wrath or his judgment and, and what we see here through this just an incredible thing to just log in, into your mind here is that God's wrath proceeds from his glory God's wrath proceeds from his his holiness and what is just so beautiful here is that when we see this throng of tribulation saints in Revelation chapter 15 and verse 2, check this out. They're standing on it. They're standing on this sea of glass that at this point is mingled with fire. And what God's showing us here is that they are actually standing in His presence on His, what? They're standing on His Holiness, And when we ended last time, I was trying to, to get us to see, we, we hurriedly just had to make this point, but this is on your outline as well. The only ones who will ever stand in the presence of the Lord are those who stand on His holiness. And again, if you're here this morning, and maybe this whole God and Bible thing and church and all that stuff... Maybe it's new for you. Maybe you're coming from a different background than what you're seeing take place in this room today. Could I just make sure that you understand this very, very clearly today? That there is nobody that could ever do anything or live a good enough life to get themselves to where they could come into the presence of God and stand in His presence without being consumed the, the book of Hebrews chapter 13 says listen to it our God is a consuming fire the nature of God is that he is holy and when unholy people come into the presence of a holy God they cannot stand in his presence the only people who will ever stand in his presence are those that stand on His holiness. Let me just clearly say this to you. This church can't
cannot make you holy enough to be able to stand in the presence of God. And it's not just because this is a bad church. There ain't a church on the planet that can make you holy enough to be able to stand in the presence of a holy God. You can't get baptized enough. Different people do it different way. We submerge people in, in, in water around here. You know what? We could hold you underwater for three days, man. And it wouldn't do one thing to make you holy enough to stand before a holy God. You can't do enough good works. Because the Bible says that every single one of us is so absolutely sinful that there ain't a way in the world that we could do that. And listen, the way that we stand in God's presence today, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, is the fact that you have been placed in Him. If you're outside of Christ, you can't stand in his presence what the Bible says for those of us that have called upon the name of the Lord apart from a church apart from this church or any other church or any other denomination apart from having water thrown on you or like we do submerge you get you totally wet doing all kind of good works you know what apart from all of that when a person will come and say oh God I know you're holy and I know I ain't and I know that there's nothing that I can do to re make myself worthy enough to enter into your presence. So I'm calling on you, and through what you did, through Jesus Christ, as payment for my sin, I trust that, and that alone, as my only hope of salvation. And you see, when you will do that, what happens, the Bible says, is we are placed in Christ. And what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 5 and verse 21 is that he became sin for us, that is Christ, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And once that has happened, Ephesians 2, 6 says that spiritually what has happened is those of us that have put our faith and trust totally and solely in him what it says has happened to us is that we have been raised, listen to this now, to sit with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's the weirdest thing in the entire world. But for those of us that know the Lord as our Savior this morning, we're seated at 878 Commercial Avenue Southwest in New Philadelphia, Ohio this morning in the United States of America, which is on the planet. However, at the same time, Right now, we are seated with Christ around His throne in His very presence at this very time. You say, I don't get that. Well, I don't get it either. I just believe it because that's what the Bible says has happened spiritually to us. But let me just tell you something. The only way that we can be there is because we are in Him and it ain't works of righteousness, as Paul told Titus. It ain't works of righteousness that we have done. This is all because of his mercy. It's all because of his grace that he allows us to come into his presence. Because not what we did, but what Christ did. And what we do is we stand on his holiness. So that's the first thing that John shows us in this sevenfold description of these victors. They are standing 
on the sea of glass. The only way they're there is because they're standing on the holiness of God. Now let's look at the second thing that John shows us about them here. Letter B. They have been victorious over the beast. They've been victorious over the beast. And John shows us that in verse 2. Look at it again. He says, And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. Here it is now. And them that had gotten the victory over the beast. Now, if you've been here for our study of the book of Revelation to this, this point, you look at that and you already know who the beast is. The beast is, is who, y'all? The, the Antichrist. And we went into great detail about him when we were in chapter 13. And what we've seen, as we've compared Scripture with Scripture through the Word of God, is what we've seen is at the midway point in the tribulation period, what's going to take place is there is going to be a war in heaven. That's detailed for us in Revelation chapter 12. But there's going to be this, this war in heaven, and it's going to take place between Michael and his angels, and uh, against Satan and his angels, or his demons. And when it's all said and done, according to Revelation chapter 12, Satan is going to get his lights knocked out, he's going to fall to the earth, and at that point, Knowing that his time is short, he's going to pull out all the stops and he's going to do everything that he can possibly do to get in God's face. And you'll remember in Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 14 that when he was Lucifer, the anointed cherub, and he rebelled against God, you remember what his bottom line desire was, y'all? It was to be like what? It was to be like the Most High. It was to be like... God himself, and of course the Most High, as we see it throughout the Word of God, is manifested in three persons that we call the Trinity, or the, the three-in-one, and I'm still on that point on the other page, but go ahead and turn it, it doesn't matter to me. We're still on that Isaiah 14 thing. No, I, I think we're moving into this now. Okay, check it out. The Most High is manifested in three persons, or what we call the Trinity, okay? Now check this out. At the midpoint of the tribulation period, when Satan is pulling out all of these stops, what's incredible but not surprising is the fact that Satan, too, is going to manifest himself in three persons, in what we refer to biblically as the satanic or unholy trinity. And that's what's revealed to us in chapters 12 and 13 of the book of Revelation. But if you want to see them in kind of an overview fashion, turn over to chapter 16, in verse 13, because we see all of them listed here. Now, it's all spelled out. That's what chapter 12 and 13 is all about. It's it, it summarized for us in chapter 16 and verse 13. You can see all three of them listed there. First of all, the dragon. Of course, also the beast. And then... The false prophet. You see him there in verse 13? The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And the dragon, of course, is Satan himself or the anti-God or anti-father. The beast, as we've already said, is the anti-what? Anti-Christ or the anti-son. The false prophet, of course, is the anti-spirit. 
And you can bank on the fact that that just isn't just some cute little coincidence. It's because his desire is to be like the Most High, and this is its final fulfillment here. But what Revelation chapter 13 lets us know, along with other countless cross-references throughout the Old Testament, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and other places in the book of Revelation, is that at the beginning of the tribulation period, which from a human standpoint is going to be prompted by that unbelievable disappearance of people in that event we call the rapture. When that thing takes place, it is going to thrust the entire world into an utter state of, of absolute chaos. And at that point, the beast or the Antichrist will come to political power as the world leader of the one world government. And he's going to do so according to Revelation chapter 6 through a series of arms control and, and peace treaties. And he's going to call the shots as the dictator who rules the government of the entire world. And for the first three and a half years when he comes on the scene, he is going to be so incredibly benevolent and, and so incredibly persuasive and smooth. He's going to hold such miraculous power, Second Thessalonians says, is the world is going to look at him and literally see him as a savior. The Jews will look at him and they'll think that he's their long-awaited Messiah. He, he's finally come on the scene. And then all of a sudden, and again, we saw this in chapter 13, at the three-and-a-half-year period of the seven-year tribulation, what's going to take place with this world leader is he's going to receive a, a deadly wound to the head, and he'll apparently die. And while all the world watches, the Bible says, evidently through satellite television, as the whole world watches the death of their Savior, or their Messiah, if you will, what's going to happen? Right before their very eyes is he will apparently resurrect. And we know from Revelation chapter 12, cross-referencing with chapter 13, and what Jesus taught us in John chapter 6, we understand what's going to take place at that point is that human leader will die, and what is going to take place is that war in heaven between Michael and, the, and, and, and Satan takes place, and Satan is cast to the earth. He, at that point, will take up residence in the body of that Antichrist and will counterfeit the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it will be right before the eyes of everybody on this planet. And at that point, what he's going to do is he's going to walk into the Jews' newly rebuilt temple, which will take place in the first part of the tribulation period. He'll walk into that temple. He'll walk right into the Holy of Holies, and he'll take his seat on the throne that's reserved for the Lord Jesus Christ, and he'll declare to all the world that he is God and that he is worthy of worship. What the Bible says is he's going to have an image made of himself, and he'll demand that all of the world worship his image and upon worshiping his image you will receive a, a mark on the back of your hand or in your hand the Bible says or in your forehead which is probably going to be a computer chip called the number of his name we'll see that in just a second which is most likely going to be a, a series of three six-digit numbers the infamous six 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 and in order to buy or sell anything during the the, the, tri the last half of the tribulation period You'll have to have 
that number. And if you won't take the mark, which is another way of saying, if you will not worship the beast, if you will not worship the Antichrist, according to Revelation chapter 13 and verse 15, you will be killed. And if you want to know the form of capital punishment in the tribulation period when the Antichrist issues this decree, it's found in chapter 20 of Revelation and verse 4. The final form of capital punishment on this planet isn't going to be as, as civilized as the electric chair or the gas chamber or lethal injection. What it says in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4 is it will be decapitation. People all over this planet will be standing in lines waiting to have their heads lopped off by the government of the Antichrist. And what's such an uh, amazing thing is that these victors, look in chapter 15 now, these victors that verse 2 is talking about, these tribulation saints that John sees standing on this sea of glass, these people are the ones who have actually had their heads chopped off by the Antichrist or the beast. And, and yet check out how God describes them to us through John in verse 2. He, he says that they were those that had gotten the victory over the beast. Okay, now check this out, y'all. The beast chopped their heads off which certainly from a human perspective would just be a slam dunk, no pun intended, that the beast had gotten the victory over them. Right? But God says they were the ones, these tribulation saints were the ones that had gotten the victory over the beast. Well, what does that mean, that they got the victory over the beast? Well, uh, it's significant because look on in verse 2. It says that they also got the victory over his image. What does that mean? And it says they got the victory over his mark. Well, what does that mean? They got the victory over the number of his name. What does that mean? And you begin to see that there's something that God's trying to show us about these tribulation saints and the victory that they actually got. You know what it means that they got the victory over the beast? It's on your study sheet. What that actually means in the context is that they overcame the final terrible form of political pressure exercised through the Antichrist in the tribulation period. You know what these folks are going to be like? They're going to be like Peter and John in Acts chapter 3, and they'll obey God rather than man. They'll obey God rather than the government. But not only that, as I just showed you, John says that these tribulation saints have been victorious, not, over, not just over the beast, but, but next, over his image. You know what that means? They overcame the final terrible form of religious pressure exercised through the Antichrist in the tribulation period. You see, religiously, the whole world is going to have to bow to the image of the Antichrist. And when it says they had victory over the image, 
they overcame the final terrible form of religious pressure, pressure that was being exercised or will be exercised through the Antichrist in the tribulation period. You know who they're going to be like? They're going to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3, and they will refuse to bow to the image of the world dictator regardless of what threats are placed on them. So they have victory religiously. And not only that, John goes on to say that these tribulation saints have been victorious over his mark. Now what does that mean? That is, they overcame the final terrible form of social pressure exercised through the Antichrist in the tribulation period. And you know who they're going to be like? They're going to be like Jeremiah in the books of Jeremiah and Lamentations who stood in the midst of a society that allowed itself to be marked by submitting to the government, the false government and the false system of religion and the worship of false gods. And just like Jeremiah, they'll stand alone if they have to socially against the Antichrist. And then John goes further in verse 2, describe these, these victors in the tribulation period as those that have been victorious over his number. His number, and specifically the number of his name. You say, well, what does that mean? What that means is that they overcame the final terrible form of economic pressure through the Antichrist in the tribulation period. And you know who they'd be like? They'll be just like Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19, who was threatened, if you'll check it out in chapter 19 of 1 Kings in verse 1, he was threatened with having his head chopped off with a sword because he refused to be numbered with those who rejected Jehovah God so that they could come under the economic system of the religious whore. These people will do the same thing that Elijah does, or Elijah did in 1 Kings 18 and 19. You see, that's what these tribulation saints will have done. They won't bend to the political pressure of the Antichrist. They won't bend to the religious pressure. They won't bend to the social pressure. They won't bend to the economic pressure. They'll have gotten the victory over the beast, his image, his mark, and the number of his name. And again, now, okay, now that's all the, you know, that's best I can see. That's why God details those things for us, because all of those, those pressures are going to be coming in a great and terrible form in the last part of, of, of the tribulation period. But I want to remind you guys, and here, here, is, the, here is the point that you've got to see. I want to remind you, not uh, what it cost these people to get the victories. What I want you to see is how it is that they actually got the victory. They actually got the victory, y'all, by losing their life. And I'm telling you, if you just listen to that, it is such, such a paradox. Okay, now, now listen. Had this, this throng of people that, that John sees here in chapter 15, had they remained alive by worshiping the Antichrist and taking his number, do you understand? They would have been losers. But check this out. They were victors because they lost their life. They were victors because they died, and according to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, to die is what? Gain. And, and again, it's so easy for us to see that principle in these tribulation saints and, and be stirred in our spirits and get all fired up because of what we see that, you know, in these people, yes, they died, and because they died, they gained. 
and while we're looking at that, uh, a good portion of church age, church age saints this morning, and, and maybe not just a good portion, listen, maybe most of the people that consider themselves church age saints, for some reason or another, they just can't seem to tap into living this, this victorious Christian life thing. And, and now listen, do you understand? The reason we don't live in victory, I'm asking you now, do you live the victorious Christian life? Would that be characteristic of the life that you're living? Do you live? And I'm not saying are you perfect, I'm just asking you now. Do you understand what it is to live in the victory of the Christian life? You know why most people don't live in the victory or the victorious Christian life? It's real simple, and it's really tough. The reason we don't live in victory, y'all, is because we're unwilling to, to die. Listen now, okay, now please listen. We don't live in victory because we're clinging tenaciously to our life. Listen, we want to make sure that nobody takes advantage of us. We want to make sure that we still have our voice. We want to make sure nobody violates our rights, our time, our feelings, our kids, our money. And listen, because we're so busy making sure that our life is what we want it to be, you understand that's why it never becomes what God wants it to be. Because we're holding on to what is ours. And you see, this is what Jesus was saying. Listen to it. This is what Jesus was saying in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 25. Do you remember what he said? He said, whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for his sake, he said, would find it. And you see, it's that, it's that same paradox. Because we are so absolutely bent and busy holding on to life, We never really find out what the Christian life is really all about. And the fact is, folks, it's not about us. It's not about our life. It's about His life being lived through us. And, and yeah, we're, we're over there in Colossians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, and we read that because that we're saved, we're dead now. And Christ is our life. And all of us who are saved, we understand that. We understand that, that spiritually. We understand that we're not our own now. We've been bought with a price, and the only life that we have is because He brought us to spiritual life. Yeah, we understand that spiritually, but listen, folks, I'm just telling you. It's hard to find. And I know this, this sounds negative, but I'm telling you it's the truth. It, it's hard to find 
one Christian in a hundred that understands what that actually means practically. Because listen now, for Jesus to be our life practically and for Him to actually live His life through us as Paul was talking about in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, Him living His life through us in resurrection power. Do you understand in order for that to happen practically, in order for Christ to live His life through me in resurrection power, something has to happen? In order to live with resurrection power, you first have to die. You can't have a resurrection until there's a death. And we don't live the victory in the Christian life for that very reason. We don't have resurrection power for that very reason. We don't want to die. We don't want to die to our will. We don't want to die to our wants. We don't want to die to our desires and our ego and our plan. We, we don't want it to ever get to the place where it's no longer I. We want to think in terms of me and my and mine. But you see, because we're, we're so bent on remaining alive, what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 25 is, we lose. And had this throng of people that John sees here been bent on remaining alive like us, they would have lost eternally. But they died, and they were victorious. One of the most amazing paradoxes in the entire Bible, and what I'm trying to get you to see is, that's what's holding us back. Is because what we admire in these people, we're not willing to face ourselves. And some of us this morning, we went through the things that, that this group of people had received victory over. You know what? Let's just walk through those for a second. You know what? Some of us have never gotten the victory in the very areas that this group of people got a victory in. Check this out. If politically, okay? Let, let's just talk politically for a second. If the government said, all of a sudden, they just they, they come along, and while we're sitting in this big fat room th this morning, a decree is passed, and the U.S. government says that it is punishable by death to be a Christian, or to read the Bible, or to go to church, or to tell other people about Jesus. You know what? Some of us this morning would be in a lurch if that happened. And we'd move into a little process of... And do you see the very fact that we'd be in a lurch is an indication that we've never really died? You see, until you cross the bridge of it doesn't matter what the president or the laws or, uh, of the land or what anybody else says, it, it doesn't matter what they threaten me with, I'll follow every law of the land, but I won't if it means I've got to violate the law of God. And you see, until you come to that point, you've not really entered into victory politically. you just got to come to the place to where, hey, that's a no-brainer. I'm dead already. So, hey, 
what are they going to threaten me with death over this thing? Some of us that are in this room this morning that claim to be believers in Jesus Christ, we claim to be Christians, but you know what? We really don't live in victory religiously. Oh, yeah, we're, we're saved on our way to heaven. You know, we, we, listen, we never bow to, to any idols or, or images representing any gods or saints or leaders or anything like that, and yet, check it out. Year after year after year in our Christian life, we bow to the God of self. We bow to the God of pleasure. We bow to the God of money. We bow to the God of this world, namely the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We, we bow to the God of, of possessions, our car, our house, our clothes, our bank account, and the fact is that because those things are our pursuits, you know what? It's a telltale sign that we've never really come to the place religiously. That we have victory over the enemy in that area. Some of us have never really begun to live in the victory over the enemy socially. You know why? Because we're so afraid of what others are going to think or going to say about us. We don't want people to think that we're, you know, weak-minded or we're unintelligent, and that's why we've embraced Christianity. I mean, we don't want the people to think that we're jerks. We don't want them to think that we aren't cool, or we don't want them to think that we're, we're fanatics. And so what we do is we only pull this Christian thing out when we know we're still going to be accepted, or we're not going to be made fun of, or it's not going to do anything to, to hinder our status. It's not going to do anything to hurt our business or anything like that. And you know why? You know why we live our lives like that? Because we're not dead. And we've never really gotten the victory over the enemy socially. We haven't gotten the victory over the enemy religiously. We haven't gotten the victory over the enemy politically. And you know why some of us never live in victory over the enemy economically or financially? You know what, the, the vast majority of times, y'all, it isn't because we don't make enough money. It's because our carnal appetites are bigger than our paycheck. We, we live in a house with too big a mortgage. We drive a nicer car than we need. We eat out more than we should. We wear clothes we can't afford. And, of course, the reason we can do all of those things isn't because we have it and it just puts us in a pinch. We can do those things because we can, we can charge it. And so what we do is we live in debt up to our ears. And you know what? When you're not living in financial victory, it's real hard to live in victory in any other area of your life. Because that phone rings, and when that phone rings, it's hard to live with his peace ruling in your heart when you don't know for sure if it's somebody on the other end of that thing that's wanting to be paid for what you owe. Yeah, you know what? That financial pressure is what zaps a lot of the strength that you need in order to be able to have victory in the other areas of the Christian life. And, and what I'm trying to get you to see here is, oh yes, it's, it's, it's so nice to be able to just run through verse 2 and begin to see these things. Yes, they overcame 
him politically, they overcame him religiously, and they overcame him socially, and they overcame him economically. And all that just be wonderful for them when the whole New Testament is full of everything that would show you that God wants us to live in that same kind of victory practically in our life right now. So, John gives us the description of these, these victors. He, he says they're, they're standing on the sea of glass. They've been victorious over the beast. They've been victorious over his image. They've been victorious over his mark. They've been victorious over his number. And we're, we're out of time. I wanted to get to the sixth and to the seventh things this morning, but uh, we're just going to have to cool it. Why don't you go ahead and pack up and let me talk to you. What, what all did you bring that you got to pack up? <laughs> Good night. All right, now li listen, y'all. God wants us to live in victory. And I'm just telling you, there ain't many that do. Jesus said, I'm come that you might have life. And that you might have it more abundantly. Okay, obviously, there's two kinds of life. Eternal life. And Jesus came to be able to give us that. And if you're here this morning and never received Christ, listen, that's the beginning place for you. That's where the victory begins for you. With you coming to the place to where it's no longer I, it's no longer me trying to please God and do this and be this religious and do this for these people. And <sighs> That whole book is really written to show you that none of those things can ever settle your problem. The only one that could settle that was Jesus Christ, and he made sure that it didn't come through a church or through anything that anybody did other than die. To come to the place where he's saying, I know, it's all you. So I'm asking you to be my life. Forgive me of my sin. Come into my life and pile. He gives you the victory over death, hell, and the grave. And some of you today, that's what God wants to give you is that victory. But oh my goodness, man. There's hundreds and hundreds of people all over this room, including the front. That victory is just so that we can begin to live in a whole new arena of victory in life. And some of us have never really come to the place to where we really have practically come to the end of self. Never really come to the place of dying. Never really come to the place to where it doesn't matter what 
they do or what they say. I'm going to live in the victory that Jesus Christ died to give me on a daily basis. Not just the victory of getting to heaven, but of actually living in this victory that he wants to give us. And oh, oh y'all, listen, let's don't, let's don't go through here and say, oh, can you imagine these people as they stand against the enemy as he's revealed through the Antichrist? Isn't that great? When, you know what? The call of the Christian life is for us to stand against the enemy. He just doesn't happen to be revealed in the Antichrist. It's the same enemy though, y'all. And the same pressures that we see on these people are the same pressures that we live with. And God wants to give us the victory. And that victory begins, I think, upon the reception of truth. We come to a place to where we're sitting in a room like this and God begins to show us these things and we say, yes, this is right. This is truth. And I'm sick of hanging on to life, trying to make sure that everything goes the way that I want it to go. When God says, if you just die, you'd live with the power of the risen Savior being lived through your life. Man, doesn't that sound a whole lot more inviting than this treadmill that we're all on trying to live this thing? It's, it's that close for all of us. But it comes because of a point of decision. And let's bow our heads right now. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you know what? Just like I'm telling our folks here, there comes a, a, a place in time where you receive the truth of God. And what God begins to do is He begins to take that truth and He begins to open your eyes to the reality of who He is. He begins to open your eyes to the reality of who you are. And, and you're left with a decision. And that is, am I going to continue to go my own way? Or will I lay my life down to receive the life of God that He provided when He laid His life down for you. And some of you are at that point of decision today. And you know what? Before you leave this building today, you can respond to what God has revealed to you. Some of you today could respond in obedience to His command for you to drop your life, your religiousness, your works, and come to Him so that you might find life, spiritual life. And as we're dismissed here in just a second, our pastors are going to be up on the front of this room, and they've positioned themselves there as an invitation for you to come. And if you'd like today to respond to what God has revealed to you about you coming into a relationship with Him through His Son, would you just come and, and talk to me and say, I don't know what to say. Just, just say, you know what, 
I need to talk to someone about my life. And you know what? We'll have somebody that will take the Word of God and begin to show you today how you can receive the life of God in you and know for sure that you have eternal life. But, oh, Christian, God has brought us to a point to where I, I think we somewhere along the way, now I'm not going to ask you to step out, come forward, do anything like that. I'm just asking you, right there where you're seated, has God brought you to a place to where you'd say, I am sick of clinging on to life. I'm sick of trying to save my life because the more I try to save it, just like Jesus said, man, the more it seems I seem to lose this thing and never really tap into it. And today, I want to come before God and in complete abandonment of self and yieldedness and, and submission of myself, I lay myself down to take up His cross to die so that the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ can be lived through me. And now, Lord, I, I pray for those that don't know you that this would be the day that they would respond. I pray that this would be the day that you bring them to the place of decision of coming to the end of self and receiving the life that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And oh God, bring them this morning to yourself. And Lord, for those of us that do know you, I pray that we too, in a practical way, though the spiritual reality of it is really already a settled fact for most of the people in this room, Lord, practically today, we want to die so that we can gain the victory that's found only through the life of Jesus Christ being lived through us. Help us to live against the pressure of the enemy as he seeks to overcome us in the areas that we've talked about here this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.